It's about to go down with Mark and Kathy, a live coaching show about dropping ideas. Mark and Kathy coach and have conversations with brilliant idea creators who are reimagining the world through the expression of their words, thoughts, and actions. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to It's About to Go Down. I am Mark Williams. And I'm Kathy Armias. I'm really excited today because we have my friend, Dr. Omekongo Dubinga on. If you don't know him already, oh my God, you're going to, not only are you going to know him during this episode, but look him up. Like he's a superstar um, in so many ways. And we'll talk about it in the episode, but Omekongo has a very important topic that we're going to cover today. And his idea is about, it's going to be around, like, how do we break down stereotypes? Like, how do we break it down? And so I'm really excited to talk about that. And Omi Congo, thanks for being on today. No, thank, thanks for having me. Do you mind if I do a little, little something by way of introduction, if that's okay? Oh, please. The floor is okay. yours. Awesome. So check it. When I was young, they used to call me a monster, African, bushman, monkey, I was bothered, used to pick on my clothes, I didn't have Nikes, I didn't have nice bikes, other fancy things, I didn't have much loot, no savings, no trust fund, so walking out my house every day was not fun, had no heat in the winter, no AC in the hot sun, next to my bed was rats, leftovers, they got some, used to wonder why me while seeing on TV, dudes with Beamers, Jaguars, of course Mercedes, being broke as a kid used to drive me crazy, hearing the guns at night, I couldn't sleep like a baby, but now I'll make it plain. I'm writing this on a plane on my way to California for a show. What changed? Well, I stopped making excuses for myself, took blame. You take control of your life and you can do the same. Don't matter, you've been abused, grew up with no parents. You dealt with booze, dealt with drugs, wheelchair ramped it. Maybe you grew up poor in a house, not a home. Maybe mom was an addict, pop a rolling stone. What you gotta see is life is just testing you out to see if you'll hurt yourself. Take the easy route to see if you'll throw the towel and surrender your soul to a life of crime, a life of loss, life out of control. But if you take a step back, think twice, get some goals. If you focus on your dreams and not your nightmares, yo, you'll see your life get better with your new mindset. Get new experiences that you won't regret. I took control of my life. Now I travel the globe. I met Clinton, Obama, Maya Angelou. I might be the next man on the cover of O. You take control of your destiny, you never know. I've been on BET, BBC, CNN. I've been to almost 30 countries, spoke for four millions. Now they don't call me a monster unless I'm beast in the flow. They don't call me nothing but the goat at a show. So what can you you do if you focus on great more than me probably if you concentrate get the haters out your life stop lifting dead weight and listen to no one who ever said wait you take control of your dreams and develop yourself if you eat the right foods and develop your health you live the life of your dreams trust me you'll see because you have nothing but greatness in your destiny oh that's me. <laughs> thank you they don't call me a monster unless I'm beast in the flow. <laughs> About to go down. <laughs> oh, it went down. Okay, we can just end. That's it. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my Congo, I'm glad I didn't introduce you at all. And because one of the things that, I mean, that you did it best, but I was like, oh, he's such a great rapper. Thank you. Oh, wow. Work on it for a few decades. So, you know. <laughs> That was definitely a first for us. I loved it. Loved it. Thank you. I appreciate it. How long did it take you to write it on my Congo? Like it was, that's amazing. It's so, so much. I'm very weird. Um, everything that you've ever read or, or have read or will read of mine, 
is probably it was written in less than an hour. Um, like I may think about a poem or a song for months, maybe even years. Um, I may jot a lyric down here and there, but I can't write it until the moment is right. So I, you know, I put out like seven, eight albums, um, books, and different things. But when I'm in the zone is when I just got to put it down. So that was probably like a good hour or so. Well, Mark, wow. if we had to if we had to write something like that even together, <laughs> it'd take decades. <laughs> yeah, we love words, but that's a skill. That's a skill Thank we're gonna do you. you, definitely. I might break into some other ones before we're done today. So, uh oh, all you know. right. Well, maybe Yomi Kongo could, maybe he could do our next, like, it could be like our new opening. He could write us a new opening. Do you know how long it took us just to get our name, Omi Kongo? It was terrible. Oh, really? Yeah, just coming up with the name. And then it and then it just came back to something that we used to always say to each other. It's about to go down. We used to always tell each other that on text. If one of us was going to go speak, we would text the other one and say, it's about to go down. Like, And then we would know, oh, you're going to speak right now. Yeah. That's what's up. I will do a song for you, no doubt about it. Oh, Remix! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Just make sure it's a little bit West Coast flavor, okay? Okay, 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 no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> little G Funk we got, action. We, we, we got love for the West Coast. We got yeah. love for the West Coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, uh, enough of the fun talk. Uh, let's get to the idea. Yeah. Like, that was amazing. So, Omikongo, I, you know, just for the listeners out there, of course, you, you, you are talking on this topic a lot through your through your work and you're on TV, as you mm -hmm. said in your intro. Uh, tell us tell us a little bit more about the idea and like what you're working on in that space right now. So my, my goal is really and this has actually been one of my more requested uh, talks when I'm at corporate groups, government groups or schools and uh, even community centers is, uh, is finding common ground in uncommon times. You know, I've heard people say on so many levels that this is the most polarized people have ever seen uh, the United States. And but even with that, there's ways to get to a place where we can build off of something together as opposed to tearing each other apart. And quite honestly, that that's where the, the, the rap came from. And when I said when I was young, they used to call me a monster, African Bushman monkey, I was bothered. That came from a lot of the bullying that I experienced. You know, my parents are Congolese, but I was born in Boston, Massachusetts. And growing up in the 70s and as the 80s babies, you know, with everything like Tarzan and the Sally Shrothers commercials and the Ethiopians with the start parping bellies and stuff, you know, we were likened to animals. Like we were beaten up, rocks thrown at us. We would go to school, get called monkeys and, and all of those other types of things. And so people would call us African bush boogie, African booty scratcher. And it's just weird because Many of the people who I got it from, and I grew up in a primarily black community, the majority of people I got it from was black and I'm looking at our skin color. I'm like, yo, we're all the same. I don't even got a stereotypical accent, but I was just getting mm -hmm. ha hated on and hated on. And my older brothers and sisters, before we moved to the hood, you know, they grew up in a whiter community and were dealing with a lot of racism, you know, in, in that in that sense as well. And so for me, as I started to grow up, I started to realize that we do have more things in common. And if we could just work to understand that, we can actually build something better in this society. And that's really led to all of the work that I'm doing today. Hmm. Right. You know, Mark, I'm curious on your thoughts, because you know, in a lot of our past conversations too, we've had, you know, we had conversations that that have touched on this, right? And mm -hmm. and I and I love when one of the things that we can do is like, you know, have a like 
get down to a really good idea because it's a it's a really big topic it's a really big problem it's worldwide it's not just in the united states right it's like it's very much a worldwide problem so so my question is where do we start we got to start with ourselves it's like you said you know this is it is a worldwide problem and so many times people spend all of this energy looking out the world but haven't looked at themselves first and in all of the work that I do, whether I'm working with educators, like I say, all the different groups that I talk to, I start with the same point. I, I, always, I always say to them, you have to ask yourself, you know, three questions and you have to ask them in this order. You know, how does, the, how does knowledge of my own culture uh, affect the work that I do? How does the knowledge of other people's culture affect the work that I do? And now that I have this knowledge, what can I do to work to build communities where everybody can feel celebrated and not tolerated? The reason why so many of our of our efforts fail in these spaces, whether we're talking DEI, whether we're talking about just building a more united country, is because people always start with question number two. They're always saying, you know, well, what's wrong? I, I, I'm good. What's wrong with them? What do I need to know about them? What box do I need to check about them? And when you do that, you assume that there's nothing wrong with you. You assume that you don't have any biases. And if you're going to start off from that point, departure point, you're going to end up at the wrong destination. So I challenge everybody to ask yourself questions. Some of the things we do in our sessions, we ask questions like, when was the first time race made a difference in your life? When was the first time your gender made a difference in your life? Your, your age, your religion, your physical ability, you know, the list goes on and on. And what I find is that oftentimes people start crying because they realize they never took the time to think about these things. And the, 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 the fact of the matter is 99.9% of the experiences I've had in this country and across the globe the first experience with these things are always negative. And so, but people suppress them. They don't forget them, but they suppress them. And there's some healing that maybe needed to take place during this time, but they don't want, they, they haven't done the work. So they just buried it. And then they go out into the world thinking they got it all figured out. And then they get hit with a cultural reality and they either double down on their ignorance or they, they work to become better. It's like Marlo Thomas said, you want to become bitter or become better. And really at the end of the day, I'm working in creating a space where we can become better. How do you get people? Because you, you just brought up a very interesting point with those three questions. And I love that you have those three questions. And I love that you have those three questions in that particular order. How do you get people to be that introspective first? Yeah. Because clearly that's hard. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you got to demonstrate it first. You got to lead by example. And so one of the things we talk about, you know, Chimamanda has a, you know, a brilliant TED talk, The Dangers of a Single Story. And I do an, I do an exercise with people where I ask them to talk about their single story as a bias that they developed about somebody. But I start with myself because, you know, as leaders, as facilitators, people want to, they need to see us go first especially when you're talking about race and stuff. And so I tell them about my, my single story that, that I had about white girls, you know, growing up in Boston, Massachusetts and, you know, growing up in a black community, you know, I didn't get this message from, from my parents, but, you know, really at the end of the day, every single time people will say like, don't mess with white girls. If you mess with white girls, you know, something's gonna happen and catch feelings, you know, and this Emmett Till mentality is still playing in the background, right? And so, you know, really at the end of the, and so, that, that led me to have a single story about them. And what started to change it, which was changes many people's ideas, 
is uh, is exposure. You know, you get exposure to individual people. You know, I had family members who started dating white females and I got to meet them and know them on an individual level. I, you know, I went to college, undergrad, and, you know, you get paired up with different people for your group projects. And, you know, you get to know people on an individual level and, you know, the, the stereotype was gone, you know, really at the end of the day. And now I can, I'm, experiences like that, exposure like that allows me to look at people for who they are at the end of the day and not for who the stereotype about them is. And so once you demonstrate it, I find that other people are willing to demonstrate it as well. Mm. You, you know, Kathy, I can you still hear me? Yes. yes, yes, perfectly, perfectly. Um, Kathy, I had a question for you um, about how to get people to care about this subject, especially as we were just talking about how hard it is for people to be introspective in. And I'm kind of going, I love, I love what you said. At the end of the day, it's got to start with the person who's speaking first and sharing your single story first. Do you find, Kathy, that on topics like this, it's hard for people to digest it because of whatever fears they're, they're, they're you know, whatever fears or whatever stereotypes that they're holding in, right? Um, I'm curious, what do you think about, how do you get people to even care mm. about looking on the inside first, you know, so, so that they can listen to this message? You know, our minds are melding on that, Mark. <laughs> when Omi Kongo was talking, I was like, I was like, yes, you're saying the right thing. <laughs> But how do we get people to care about that? And I think that's probably the basis for this conversation is what, what I would love to veer that around. Because Ome Congo, I mean, I've listened to you talk about so many things in this space and you're so brilliant. You're so compassionate. You're so motivational. Like, I'm like, everybody should just listen to Ome Congo. Then we'd all be great. Then we'd be fine, right? But, but I think you're right, Mark. And, and maybe, maybe, so when you said the three things, Omikongo, I'm going to, I, so one thing hit me, by the way, you said, start with knowledge of your own culture and how it affects, if I wrote this down, I was trying to write it fast and how it affects the work that you do. Well, first of all, I thought I, to make this message more general, I would make it, it affects the way that you live period work mm -hmm. home everything like take out the work part because anything tied to work also sounds negative i think you know is this work oh man is this work to be doing is this racial stuff like which is terrible it's not it's like human stuff it's like be a good exactly. human kind of thing right and so i i think maybe um this is this is my knee jerk what came to reaction because i love that starting with yourself i thought about first people love they know themselves. Like, what if, what if you, what if everybody starts with the things that are good about themselves? Yeah. What are, yeah. What are your good traits? And then go, okay, what could you be blind to? I don't know. That's where my mind went. Because I, I was like, if I first say, well, like, I'm a kind person, I'm, I'm compassionate, I think about other people, I'm highly emotive. So when, if somebody's feeling bad, I'm feeling bad. Like, those, that's, those are good, good traits. What could I be blind to? Oh, there's a lot of things I could be blind to. Mm -hmm. I could be insensitive in the way that I use my words. I could, you know, not understand that somebody doesn't, didn't have the same background that I did. So then maybe I'm explaining a situation and assuming that you and I grew up the same or then mm -hmm. it'd be, I don't know. I felt like it might be easier to talk about that if you prepped it with something positive. 
Yeah, it, it can help. I feel like I feel like it can definitely help. And I feel like it, particularly in situations where, you know, we all have to start somewhere, right? You know, mm -hmm. you want to put yourself in a position where you can start with the good. And, you know, when you start with the good, you're more likely to end with the good, right? And so when people are, when we're asking these questions, when, when things made a difference in their life, people are usually talking about the experiences of other people. But when you start with yourself first, you know, and you start looking at some of the things that you were brought up to do, you know, I was brought up to treat people with respect, you know, that's, that's a kind place to start. You know, I, I was taught to treat people how I want to be treated. Like that's a positive place to start. You know, then yep. the questions start to come up about like, well, where were there spaces where I didn't do that? Where I didn't mm -hmm. act the way I thought I was supposed to act? And is it with a particular group more often than not? And if so, what does that say about me? And then that leads to more questions about what do I know about myself? I'll give you an example, you know, teaching at, at American University. Uh, I teach several classes there. Um, I teach a class on Jay-Z, come check it out. It's pretty popular. Yeah. I love it, uh, I love I it. <laughs> I have a PhD in Jay-Z, so, you know, um, it's a popular class. He's not kidding, actually. He's actually not kidding. Wow. Check out the dissertation. But I teach another class called Intercultural Communication. And at the end of the semester, one of the white students said, you know, this class made me realize that I was racist. And I was like, wow, I didn't even put that as part of the syllabus. Like, you might realize you're racist in my class. I wasn't even part of the ad, you know? But, you know, and so, but he said, when I came into class on the first day, I asked myself, why did I get the angry black male professor? Oh, nothing wow. about me. They didn't go online, didn't watch any videos, just saw my appearance. And I had a blazer on and, you know, the button, you know, whatever. And he said, you know, going through this class, it just made me realize the racist ideas I had. And one of the stories he wrote was when he was a kid, like five, six years old or something, he was sitting with his uncle watching TV and his uncle was pointing to the black folks on there. And he was like, you know, do you see that guy right there? That's a N word, you know, like say the whole, you know, the whole thing full out, like, and that was his like introduction to black people, you know, was the way his uncle was raising him to be racist. And so those are the things that people got to start asking themselves. Well, I'm a kind person, but I've always treated Asian people a certain way. I've always treated people who are Latino a different way than I've treated white. And why is that? And you'll find that it usually comes down to stories and lies that you were told about people, you know, which is the subject of the book that I'm working on now, which will be out in the spring, you know, it's called lies about black people. And it's really getting into how lies that have been told about black people have actually worked to undermine and hurt us all. And then it talks about what we can do on our anti racist journey to find that common ground. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing, Mark. I was like, yeah, every time Omikongo, like, wow, Omikongo, you just said so many great things. Mark, I'm wondering too, like, um, I, Omikongo put out kind of a, when he, when he's first started the book, I think, right, Omikongo, so he put out a thing to ask people to fill out you know, this questionnaire about lies you've been told about black people. And I filled, filled one out. I don't know if I'll make the book or not, but it was <laughs> I, powerful. I filled it out and it was a powerful experience to actually sit and try to unwind it. And so I want, one of the things that's coming to my mind really quick, and maybe this is just a thought I had, I don't know if it makes sense to either one of you, 
is what I think you're doing on my Congo is you're having people, you're going back and trying to rewire. And the only way to rewire is to rewind, mm-hmm. right? When you re- rewind, I had to rewind to these places. Like you asked the simple question, what lies have you been told about black people? I yep. jotted it down. And then I was like, and then you were like, where'd you hear about it? And I was like, huh, did I make that up or did, <laughs> did I hear this? And then I was like, no, I did hear it. And then, and then I, I it really caught, got me in this space um, and I'm sure everybody could talk about that in so, any kind of stereotype. Yes. Oh, what lies were you told about mm-hmm. fill in the blank, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's what we live in, in the world. I mean, uh, you know, they say that well, we make up our minds quickly and we change them slowly. And the, the less we know about each other, the more we make up. So if you're not yeah. surrounded by people who are of different backgrounds, the majority of us will get our education from from television, you know, the Washington Post reported in 2014, I believe that 74% of white people have no non-white friends, like not even no black friends. So you can't even say like my best friend is black, like no non-white friends. So like, if that's the case, where are you getting the information from about other groups? And I'm sure mm-hmm. it's a high percentage for other communities as well. So all we get is is, is the media, you know, which gives us misinformation and, and a powerful word that I that I like to use called uh, agnotology. I don't know if I have a chance to get to that. It's one of my favorite words to talk about. Uh, but we're yeah. also suffering from a lot of that today as well. Hold up, wait yeah, a minute. Yeah. Say you, again. You can't, you, you can't just throw out a word like that and no, just, not- And move it on. <laughs> Respect the English teacher in the house. Exactly, there's an English teacher in the house. He's like, no doubt, no doubt. Job agnotology and I'm like, so how about those Knicks? Um, <laughs> so I, I learned this word maybe two years ago and it really summarizes so much of what we're dealing with today. And it's agnotology. It's also used to be spelled agnotology, you know, A-G-N-O-T-O-L-O-G-Y. And basically what agnotology is, it's the study of how doubt is produced, particularly the production of, of misleading scientific data. And the, the best example that everybody's going to understand is the smoking industry, right? Tobacco in the 60s. Once the tobacco industry realized they couldn't refute the information out there about the dangers of smoking, they basically said, well, we're just going to create doubt. And they literally wrote in 1969, doubt is our product. So it's like, let's just put celebrities in advertisements because if you, and I'm just making this up time-wise, it doesn't matter. You see Elvis or Beyonce or Jimmy Dean or Michael Jackson in a, in a commercial smoking, then it must be cool. This science, what are they talking about? You know, Elvis is smoking and you got, I got Joe Camel. I love this cartoon image, right? And so that, and so that's what we're talking about. You just create doubt and that automatically makes people question. So I'm going to ask y'all real quick, what are two phrases that emerged in 2016 that represent agnotology today? Two phrases that created mm-hmm. doubt. 2016, come with a, an election. Oh, 2016. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, what? Make America great again? Yeah. Nope. Fake news Fake and alternative news. facts. Yeah, 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 yeah. That became popular to such an extent that people on all sides of the spectrum have used that. And that's the modern day example of it, because as soon as you say yeah. something and people say that's just fake news, they're introducing doubt. Yeah. Oh, those are alternative facts. They're introducing doubt. And when you introduce doubt, there's no need to have a conversation because you may not. How do you know? How do I know? Nobody knows. Therefore, I'm going to just do my thing. And that's part of the reason where we are where we are today. Wow. So true, you actually. just dropped something. 
Wow. Yeah. Ooh. Wow. It's real, man. So, so then, Kathy, I want you to go, but I, 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 I'm going to drop this question for us to think about. If, if, the, if the presence of doubt is prolonging stereotypes, how do we erase the doubt, mm. right? And how do we get people to erase the doubt in their own minds and in their own, catch this word, Gabby, in their own lives? And again, we melded, Mark. I don't know. We're on. We're on some kind of weird cue today. I was thinking. This, I was. I was thinking the same thing. I was like, the doubt. Uh, you know, for me, then the idea is like, if you, you know, oh my god, you, oh you just described a situation where like somebody might not have a black friend at all, and so mm -hmm. where are you getting your information from? It's almost like, how do you, how do you confirm or deny? alternative facts fake news doubt how do you how do you do that that is getting to know somebody that you think that you know based off of you know anyway it's kind of confronting doubt i guess is what i was thinking Mark. so one of the things i ask people to do is you know and this is going to be part of the book but i also wrote it in like a small blog is i really challenge people with uh this thing i call the rule of seven and all I, I, people who really say they're about this life, people who really say that they're committed to DEI and all of this other stuff, I'm like, yo, like, <laughs> I want you to ask yourself seven questions. And the answers to those questions are going to tell you how committed you are to breaking down the biases, breaking down the stereotypes. And you know what? You can even make up the seven questions on your own, but I'll give you some on your own uh, to start with. What do your seven closest neighbors look like? What do the authors of the last seven books that you read look like? What do the hosts of your top seven podcasts look like? You go to the theater, what does the cast of the last seven shows that you saw look like? You watch TV, what does the cast of the last seven shows you get watched look like? You got kids in your life? What, who are the authors of the last seven books you bought them? Who are their seven closest friends? Who are your seven closest friends, right? If you, if you are in a leadership position at your work, what do your last seven hires look like? You go to you're religious, you go to church, mosque, synagogue, or whatever. What do the seven people looking next to you look like at your job, even if you're not in a leadership position? What do the seven closest colleagues of your team look like? If you go through and you, you can get through like two or three questions, and say like, yeah, I'm committed to diversity. But once you get to like five, six or seven questions, if your answer is still the majority of everybody is all white, the majority of everybody in those questions is all black or all Asian or something, you haven't lived a life that is committed to diversity, equity and inclusion, period, mm -hmm. bottom line. Sure, you may not be able to move from your house tomorrow, but you can change an author in your book. You can change a podcast. You can change a TV show that you watch. You can change the social media folks. You can change the play that you go to. You can do that. If you don't do that, it's because you don't want to. And you've probably been in a position where you've never had to. And so people can say that the stuff that I'm saying is nonsense or I'm racist and all this other, or I'm just trying to like stir up the pot. But at the end of the day, when you sit down with those questions, you are going to show yourself what kind of life you created. And, what, and, and you might see that you're really not about that life. You also might see if you black and like every answer is majority white, 
there's another issue going on there, which is a subject for a whole nother conversation on like self-hate. But, you know, but people need to have that type of, you know, re self-reflection to really see what they're, they're, what they've been committed to their entire lives. Can I call it self-revelation? And if I asked that after, after they revealed the information that they find from this list of seven. And I got to tell you, I'm already thinking about how do I answer those questions, right? Mm. What's the next step? Because I think there's such an idea that's present here. What do I do after I go through the seven? What's next? If I say I'm about that life and I yep. look at the list and it's not about that life, what do I do now? Wait, before you answer it, can I say something first? Sure. Sorry, only because before you answered, I want to say something that I want because it would come before that. I think one of the first observations on that was like, oh, on some of them, I'm doing great. I'm like, oh yeah, check, good. Yeah. Check. And then I'm like, oh shit. Oh no. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I just so before you answered it, I wanted to just make that observation is I think sometimes people might take a couple of the areas and think, oh no, I'm great. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm great in that. Because if I look at some of those, it's awesome. So, okay, now go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to. No, and, I, and like I said, that's why you got to do at least seven, you know, six, seven questions. Because some of these are just easy. But what you do after that is you start with the easiest one. What's the mm -hmm. easiest thing I can do right now to start introducing more diversity into my life or my children's lives, you know, or whatever. So an easy thing is to start with, look at your list of authors. If all the authors you've been reading have been, you know, black men or white women or, you know, uh, Latino females, you know, or, or Latinas, I'm sorry, you know, whatever it is, then it's like, wow, I, I, my, my mindset has been formulated by just reading all of this. I'm going to start mixing it up. You know, a, a lot of times, I, you know, I have a friend, uh, Crystal Washington, who's a speaker and she's a futurist. But, you know, she rocks, you know, Afrocentric clothes. She got a big Afro. So she's like, when stuff goes down, people always calling me for diversity and equity and inclusion stuff. She's like, I don't do that. You know, um, I'm a futurist. She's like, I know white guys who've been doing diversity work for like 40 years who can speak on this stuff better than I can. Right. So a lot of people like after George Floyd got murdered and they wanted to get more involved in DEI conversations. All they did was go and get like black authors and stuff. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm saying there are white people who speak on these issues. There are Asian people, there are Native Americans. So pick that one thing and everybody with all of these streaming services and that people pay all these subscriptions for and only and watch like one show, you can start going watching different shows. You know, on HP, you know, I started watching this show because, you know, everything I'm saying to y'all, I'm doing for myself or I'm working to do it myself. So I wanted to start mixing up different shows. You know, I watched this show called Warrior on HBO, which deals with the, the experiences of, of, of Chinese uh, immigrants and indentured servants during the late 1800s, at the, you know, right at the Chinese Exclusion Act was coming in. But it's also inspired by Bruce Lee, so the huge like dynamic there in terms of like, you know, the Irish gangs versus the Chinese gangs and all of that. But I'm learning so much about the Chinese experience at that point in time. I'm also watching something on Netflix called, you know, um, you know, RRR and it's dealing with like, you know, uh, you know, Indian culture and the like, I, I believe. I know that the, the cast is primarily like Hindi. Um, I'm not sure exactly what country they're in, but I'm learning things. Look, I'm a comic book head, you know, cartoons all day, Transformers like all day. 
uh, you know, Marvel Comics, DC. So one of the shows I just watched on Disney, I just finished, was, you know, Miss Marvel. And that's a show geared towards teenagers, but it's a young, you know, Pakistani, you know, Muslim superhero. And they're doing all of this stuff, talking about the partition and, you know, great British and colonialism in Pakistan. And it's expanding my knowledge. And I don't got to go to the library or go to a concert or go hear a three-hour speech or watch a TED Talk. Of course, we love the TED Talks, but I got that time for that. But I, I'm learning it in different ways in different spaces. I don't have to do that, but that's what I'm saying. So everybody start with the easy one and work your way up. All right, let's play a game. Time to play a game. All right, bring it All on. Right. Bring it on. Hey, there's a game. Because I you brought it up on the Congo and this just happened. I was like freaking out. I'm like, okay, look, look. Okay. So the other day, well, the game is this. What what could each one of us do to uh, start with the easy, right? And I'm, I'm kind of cheating a little bit. And here's why, because he said, start with the authors. I literally just saw this book the other day and I picked it up and I actually said to myself, I never read black women author, like black men a lot, but not black women. And then I was like, I got to read her book. This is right up my alley, like speaking, right? And so um, that one was cheating. So I'm going to ask you, you two, like what's something you could what's something you could easily change and then i'll think of i'll think of another one but when you said author oh my god i was like i literally just picked that up the other day yeah yeah i know for me one of the things that i started doing and and one of the things i'm, I'm at a space in my life where i'm working on removing all language to refer to other people that i consider to be disempowering so I've never used the term minority. I, I don't believe in it. Um, I don't use the term people of color. I don't, I don't mm -hmm. believe it's appropriate. Um, I hate the term BIPOC and we can get into that if you want. But you know, like uh, for example, you know, with this whole thing about disability and disability culture, you know, that's a word like in my class, I talk about getting out of my mind and maybe talking about differently able, differently challenged and stuff. And, but I realized a lot of the authors I was reading about that were people who are considered quote unquote able-bodied. And so, you know, I made a conscious effort to go read uh, or, or watch, you know, videos um, from, from deaf authors, from blind mm -hmm. authors, from people who are in wheelchairs or have cerebral palsy. And, you know, one of the, the videos I always show every semester in my intercultural communication class is by is a TED Talk by uh, Maysoon um, Zaid, who um, she says her, her talk is called, I Got 99 Problems and Palsy's Just One. And mm -hmm. she's born in cerebral palsy and she's talking about all of those experiences and you know those things you know you know i was doing all of this dei work right for for years and i'm talking about the civil rights movement and all of that and i never spoke about maybe until about five years ago the american disabilities act and the activism that was going on around that time which was happening at the same time that you know, Dr. King and others were out there fighting for civil rights and equal rights. But the documentaries I saw on Black History and all of that, you know, didn't never mention those things. And I, I felt like embarrassed that here I am calling myself an expert in this field, and I hadn't done the real work to do that. I'm also learning to listen to people. Um, I, maybe two years ago, I had my first student who was who's transgender. Now that wasn't the first transgender person I met. I was at a conference once a few years ago. And somebody who was transgender got up and, you know, she said she had like an hour long speech that was a lot, but she was slotted to speak for an hour. But you know what she did? She got up there and she said, I'm transgender. Ask me anything. Mm -hmm. And 
that conversation could have went for like two hours. People were just, because mm-hmm. she, you know, she was inviting to like, get people to learn about that stuff. So those are some of the things that I'm doing to challenge myself to think differently. You can't think differently if you're not listening to different voices. Mm-hmm. All right. All right, Mark, you're up. Yeah. So before I tell you what I would do, I'm reminded of early in my teaching career, I was a substitute teacher. I go into a class. I figured I'd be the cool substitute teacher taking over an English class and do a lesson on poetry. And in New York, of course, poetry means hip hop, right? So (laughs) I start quoting all of these hip hop lyrics. Beastie Boys. Oh. And from House of Pain. Oh. You did this in this and, decade? Uh, like the well, last two years? Uh, maybe it was a little bit older than that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Beastie Whoa. Boys, we're talking like, we're back Curtis to the blow. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I got to tell you, this kid was like, hey, mister, because, you know, that's the universal um, salutation and, and greeting from every kid uh, to their teacher. Hey, mister. Why do you keep talking about all these white rappers? Mm, mm. Um, and, and listen, I think my, my hip hop is, is very diversified. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite hip hop tracks comes from the time that I went in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, Titanium. That was mm-hmm. a group that I loved. No doubt. It, it, it really, I, I remember it to this day because those kids were asking for something diversified or actually they were asking for something that looked a little like them. And I thought I was, diversifying um mm-hmm. you know i love my music and i think that i could be more diverse in my music in terms of different artists but i'm gonna go to a different area comedy mm. i love my kevin Hart. i love my chris rock yes. i love my richard Pryor. i love my eddie murphy um I, I i love my monique you know i love my steve harvey but i wonder other than Ronnie Chang, mm. who's an Asian comedian I could be listening to? Yeah. yeah. As, as the kids in my school, who's, who's an East Asian, right? Who's a, you know, a lesbian uh, comedian? Well, I got Wanda Sykes, but that's a Black comedian, right? Mm-hmm. So how mm-hmm. could I, because I love listening to comedy, especially before it's about to go down when we do, a, a, you know, any kind of a talk. Yeah. I love listening to comedy to kind of just get me in a certain mood. But that could be an easy area for me to start looking for comedians of different cultures and different identities um, so that I can include more diversity in one of my seven areas. I love that. Oh, no doubt. And I mean, funny's funny, right? I mean, it's like, if if the comedian's good, I mean, it doesn't matter who they are and you're gonna like learn so much. Uh, Just, and again, just through the comedy. Again, you don't gotta, pay for a course, you know what I mean? You don't gotta do all, I mean, the, the, you know, we have more access to information on our phones right now than any other people had in time throughout their entire lives. Like we have the whole access mm-hmm. to the universe of information and history and most of it is free. But, you know, we go to the same three websites, our three favorite websites like every day. And we're just wasting, you know, all of this opportunity to learn and enrich our lives by enriching our knowledge about our their people and and we're suffering for it especially in a time where hate crimes are up 200 percent against like everybody 
Now, let me ask you this. As, as we all take this, this opportunity from this idea to take one of those seven areas, find the easiest area to include some more diversity, how do we step into that space and not walk out confirming any stereotypes mm. that we might have taken going into it? Well, I like what, what Chimamanda said, you know, uh, in our TED Talk, The Dangers of a Single Story, which I always encourage organizations to go watch and have a conversation about it. It's not that stereotypes are, are completely wrong, it's that they're incomplete, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you only tell part of a story. Right. So, you know, there may be aspects of something you may have heard um, about a stereotype. Some of it might get shattered when you're doing your research or learning. Some aspects of it might be confirmed, but then the question becomes, well, why is this particular stereotype true? Mm. For example, if people say that Black people are more prone to be involved in criminal activity, right? you may go and start looking at like county uh, and citywide arrest records and incarceration records and all of that and you will see a disparity between arrest of black people and other groups that is true however you dig deeper and you may find things like oh this country had a one to 100 ratio for crack cocaine versus powder cocaine so if you're white in the suburbs of powder cocaine, you get one year versus 100 if you got crack cocaine in the hood. You also may find that black communities tend to have more of a police presence. So if you've got more police, you're going to have more arrests. And, and, and those types of things will start to get you to understand. So it's not about black people are more prone to be criminals. We get probed more. We are also more likely to have people in our communities who are officers who don't live there. So they do not form bonds with the community. And when you dehuman, look at somebody as subhuman, it's easier to shoot them unarmed. When you don't see, when, or when you come from a society, one of the lies I talk about in my book, Lies About Black People, is this idea of that came through slavery of, you know, the big black buck. You know, the guy who can endure all types of pain and, you know, you can whip them all day and they can keep, they'll keep working. That mentality has transferred over into these unarmed police shootings. Because what are people saying? I feared for my life. Uh, you know, uh, the guy who Darren, William, Darren, whatever, the guy who shot Mike Brown, you know, he was talking about, oh my gosh, uh, Mike Brown, he was coming at me and he was so big. I felt like, I felt like he was Hulk Hogan and, and I was, a, I was just a little child. You know how tall Mike Brown was? 6'2". You know how tall Derek, whatever his name was, 6'2". You see what I'm saying? But the argument sells. And uh, Darren Wilson, I believe, was his name. And, and so, so what I'm saying is it's like those stereotypes continue. So if you just say Black people are more prone to be criminals and that's your stereotype, no. Go and start to look at what's actually happening at releasing these arrest records. And I think now the crack cocaine ratio is like one to 18. It's not even one to one right now. And you'll start to see that there are reasons why the stereotypes that you have have been the way that they have. Let me give you another example. This is a flip side. The stereotype that white people have of themselves who are well-to-do, like I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, like that type, and if I did it, they can do it. So look, here's the thing. 
we have a tendency to look at racism as this thing that's so oppressive and affects marginalized communities. And of course, that's true. But I got news for you. If you grew up in an all white community, those Levittown communities where nobody else, you know, your doctors are white, the bank tellers are white, you know, other schools are white and everybody, you're actually a product of racism too. You're, and you just don't know that. Why? Because when you read books like The Color of Law and when you read books like The Color of Money, you would see how racism has been embedded into our real estate where people had on their deeds. You can't sell this house to a black person or a Jewish person where you would see that people would shut down their entire neighborhoods if a black person did. You would see that this was part of government policy and when government policy failed, that's when the Klan come in and burn stuff down. Hey, Black Wall Street, right? Greenwood. So like even in your like white lily whatever like you are a product of racism as well but the stereotype of white people just work hard blah 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 blah. yeah okay you work hard no doubt but shoot my grandfather came out of world war ii your grandfather came out of world war ii your white grandfather got access to the gi bill to get help with loans and houses and cars and, and education my grandfather didn't get that so you know, they say housing is like the biggest way to start your, your wealth foundation. We were excluded from that. You go to the New Deal in the 30s before that. Who was excluded from the New Deal? Agricultural workers and domestics who were primarily black people. So every way people want to talk about let's end affirmative action, but what about when affirmative action was white? Because this country has always done things to help white people get a leg up. Even coming to this country as immigrants centuries ago, you got plots of lands. We got shackles. I'm just saying. Wow. Truth. <laughs> you know, I just, uh, yeah. I just. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. We love your passion. And the passion is really important to come through. And as you say that, here, here was a question that I had. And, and, and it, it ties back into what you said earlier, that it, that it starts with the speaker, right? And it starts with the speaker being vulnerable enough to say, listen, I'm going through this too. Mm -hmm. What was an incomplete stereotype that you had about another group? I mean, goodness gracious, I've had so many stereotypes. I, I think that the easiest one that comes off the top of my head is uh, just stereotypes I had about Native Americans. You know, because just growing up in, in Boston, Massachusetts, not knowing any, the only exposure I had to Native Americans was on television, you know, the Bugs Bunny cartoons and all of that other type of stuff. So that whole thing about, you know, Native Americans being poor, being on reservations, you know, the style of dress, uh, definitely, I, I just thought like that was the case. I didn't, you know, maybe not until I started, you know, talking to my parents. I mean, I was still probably in like elementary school or middle school, you know, when it started to change. Um, getting that exposure to realize that, you know, you can have Native Americans who wear quote unquote, you know, Western clothing or don't live on a reservation or who are who have more money than me, you know, like all of those types of things. And then, you know, when I went to college, uh, my sophomore year roommate was Native American and I was I was part of something called the Student Activities Commission and your seven commissioners on campus, student commissioners who help organizations get money for their groups. So I represented nine clubs. And one of the clubs I was chosen to represent was the Native American club. And so I had to work with them to advocate for them to get money for the things they wanted to do on campus. 
Mm -hmm. So I had to sit there and just learn so much. I also represented the Italian club. I represented the South Vietnamese society, the Hmong society, the Irish dancing ballroom club. I'm like, what is that? You know what I mean? But it required me, you know, to be humble and sit back and like, yo, I got to come in and fight for these people to get their money. And I can't do that if I'm coming through with these stereotypes. Wow. You answered my question. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I love how deep this got fast. It's really good. Um, it just shows you, like, I, my brain was like turning, like, oh my gosh, there's so many layers to it. And I think that is what overwhelms people sometimes, right? Yes. And, but again, if we kind of go back to where you started, Omi Congo, it literally just starts with yourself. It starts mm. with the way you think about your community, the way you think about your own culture. What are you thinking about other people's culture? Um, I love the, I love the, I love, I don't know the word you said, agnotology. 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 Mm. agnotology. Yep, yep. I, I love the presence of that in this conversation as well, because I, if all of us were aware of how much doubt is being produced in us constantly mm -hmm. over an array of things, they don't even have to be about, you know, humanistic things like in, in marketing constantly, right? Yep. The, the paradox of choice is really that, yes. oh, I, I'm doubting myself because mm -hmm. what if I choose this flavor and this one's better and what, you know, um, I think even just that awareness of like, I don't know. I, I was trying to get it marked to the simplest point because I think it can quickly feel overwhelming and then people stop. And I don't like that. I mean, I know it happens to me. I'm like, ah, oh. when you start talking about the whole system, I was like, yes, there's a whole system in place. Right. And I, mm -hmm. I've, as I've gotten older, I've come to understand how big that system is and how complicated it is. And, and then that overwhelms me. And then I, but then I feel empowered when I can go back to like, well, I can, I can do something. But, but Kathy, like, but, but here's the thing, right? I, I hear you, but what we're talking about now, like people can do uh, on their own. They don't even have to tell anybody. You know, like when Marcus talked about like, just like going to start watching different comedians. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he doesn't have to go on YouTube or on, and TikTok and Facebook and be like, I want to learn more about different cultures. So I'm watching <laughs> more. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it can be so personal. Yeah. yeah. And when it's so personal and internal, it doesn't have to be overwhelming. You don't got to go out right. and announce it. To, and then if you want, when you feel comfortable, you can start stepping out into the bigger things and the bigger conversations. And I'm going to issue a challenge to all of your listeners and viewers right now. The three of us here, we have all exposed our own biases towards something we had at some point in time. Uh, you know, we all, we, we did that. We didn't talk about, you should do it. We did that. We mm -hmm. demonstrated that. If you are gonna get off of this show and not find at least one yourself that mm -hmm. you at least had and might still have, you're not serious about this work. You're not serious about creating the change that you claim to want. You're not being the change that you want to seek. This is the work that needs to be done. Yes, some of us live in this world. I wake up looking for conversations and healthy debates to have on this stuff. I'm on social media. I'm on television shows, engaging politicians and all that. Like I, I, I'm a, I live this. I breathe it. You don't have to do that. The change can start very small. But if you don't want to do it, it's simply because 
you don't want to. And you probably live in a space where you don't have to. And I'm mm-hmm. challenging you to do better. Oh my God, I want to, oh my God, go. Thank you. Like, that's so inspirational. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm hearing the, the voices and the thoughts of those who don't want to. Because as far as they're concerned, they have no doubts. They're absolutely certain. This group is like that. Yes. This group is like that. And there's nothing you can say. But I do wonder, and I'm going to make a very trivial comparison. I have a very close friend of mine who can't stand the actor Willem Dafoe. <laughs> he can't stand him. He can't stand him. That's my brother, too. He can't stand him either. <laughs> I'm with it. But he's seen almost everything that Willem Dafoe is in. Mm-hmm. And here's his logic. Because if anybody tries to say that I have some uninformed, ignorant bias, mm. no, no, no. I've seen all the work. And I can tell you, not because of the color of his skin or not because of the way he combs his hair, but because in this scene, in that movie, this is what he did, and it was just the facts. And I do wonder, for those who might feel that they have no doubt, right, that they're absolutely sure, I wonder what a challenge like that would be to them as well, Mm. right? Mm. Because what are your biases or what are your stereotypes based on? Do your homework. Watch a movie. Watch a comedy show. Listen to it. Don't just listen to the song. Pay attention to the lyrics. Mm -hmm. Watch this person in an interview. Get some more information. And then really see. And then then I, I love what you said. You don't necessarily have to come back to some forum. You don't have to go on CNN. Mm-hmm. Yep. Pick on the challenge yourself. That's right. And don't even feel the need. So I thought there was something really powerful. And, yeah. and I kind of wrote down, explore the doubt and solitude. I don't really like, necessarily like that statement, but I, I like the idea behind the, I, I like the idea behind the idea of challenging yourself to inform yourself and to expose yourself and to not feel that you have to do it for the whole world to see. And in the process, it might actually change the way you see the world. That's right. Look, it it was uh, Dr. King who said, uh, the two most dangerous things on the planet are sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity, (laughs) right? And, you know, sincere ignorance, you don't know what you don't know, and you can learn. Conscientious stupidity is the people you just described. It's like, you don't want to know, or you might know, but you don't care to learn more or go to a deeper level. And that's part of the challenge that we have today when we talk about agnotology. You know, it was Les Brown who said the average American will read one book a year after they finish their academic studies. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, people will line up at concerts, but they won't line up at libraries, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, when, when, when you look at that, and I, the majority of Americans do not own a passport but they'll talk about different countries like they've been there. And so we live in, and over the last few years, it has become cooler to be ignorant. It's become mm-hmm. you, you make more money being ignorant. Be, you know, 
ignorance is an industry. You know, you can you can make a lot of money. Hey, Alex Jones, like you can make a lot of money now off of ignorance and build entire platforms off of it. And to be quite honest, those some there's some people, my 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 belief is that everybody has their assignment. And I believe that maybe we are not the three people that can reach that guy you're talking about, but maybe somebody else will. And our job is to keep talking, keep speaking, keep yeah. talking with like-minded people, challenge the people who are open to being challenged and keep mm -hmm. building. And you know, some people will express their ignorance to the point that they'll become violent. And like I said, hate crimes are up over 200% over the last few years of black people being the number one target, followed by Jewish people. I believe Asians are third, particularly with the, you know, the COVID racism that's been out there as well. And so it's increasing. And a lot of that are, is from those people who don't want to care. For those people who don't want to do it, that we may not be able to do anything with them right now, maybe later, because they can come around later. I also love Dr. King's other quote. Um, you can't legislate morality, but you can regulate behavior. Hmm. You want to get out there and act a fool, lock them up. You know what I'm saying? Because you don't got the right to have your ignorance, you know, tread on my life and my family. But I believe at the end of the day, everybody can see the light. But sometimes you just got to keep dropping seeds. And maybe they'll hear me once and be like, nah, that's nonsense. But then they'll hear Mark and they'll be like, nah, I'm not feeling it. They'll hear Kathy. They'll hear Malala. You know, when it gets to like that 14th person. I mean, you're a teacher, Mark. Right. Like, how many times have you had people come back to your school who are as adults and be like, yeah, that thing you said back then, I wasn't hearing it, but I see it now, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like that. We've all done that. We've gone back to schools ourselves. I know I've gone back to teachers and said, yeah, I didn't hear it. So sometimes we just got to put it out there. People aren't ready to hear it. I mean, how many of y'all, how like, haven't you both listened to songs that you've heard your entire life, but this year you heard something different in a lyric? Or something oh. different in the line. Oh yeah. And you know the we know all the words. You already knew all the words. But you're like, oh shoot. So we just gotta or, keep putting it out there. Or that's what it meant. You you like yes. you were singing it and you didn't know what it and then you were like, oh, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. My you sister, know, when she was a kid, she got in trouble for singing uh voulez-vous coucher avec moi because my parents are French speakers. And and, and, my, and my sister was a kid and heard the song. She started, hey sister. So and then my mother heard that, my father heard that, they're like, don't be saying she's like, oh oops. I didn't know what I was gonna be like, you gonna sleep with me. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know the quite what the meaning was, right? Totally. Mm -hmm. I know you hear kids repeating things and you're like, Oh, I hope they don't understand what's being said. Yes, yes. Um, Mark, I just want to say something on what you said, because I, you know, I also, music is kind of a very prevalent way that, to me, it's the easy one, and I love music as well. One thing that I subscribed to hating from when I was little was classical music, orchestral, you know, mm -hmm. orchestral music. Can't, couldn't stand it, right? Then our neighbors, a couple doors down, their husband and wife, and they're both in the organ, you know, symphony. And so we started going to the Oregon Symphony and I went there thinking what you said, it was kind of funny about the William Defoe. I went there and I was like, okay, when we leave, I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna finally recognize all the things that I hate about classical music. <laughs> and then I went a couple of times and I was like, this is rad. Like it's, it's so cool to like be in this space with people that are appreciating. I can, there was like a different energy in the whole room. Like you were around people that cared about it. When you hear it on the radio, it's like a different experience. But then when you're there with people that appreciate it, and I don't know, I fell in love with it. 
<laughs> like it's such a weird. So I, I think too, if you're going to hate something, at least don't be ignorant about it. At least know everything about it so that you could actually speak with conviction. And what you'll probably find out is you don't hate the thing that you think you hate. I don't know. Well, that welcome to my K-pop experience. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yo. Oh. Yo, I teach a class uh, at American called Cultural Appropriation or Appreciation. So everything about K-pop was like, like just complete cultural appropriation. I couldn't mess with it. And then my kids started getting into it, started, and, you know, here and there. And it's this song in the car, that song in the car. And I got, you know, and I started learning about some of the artists who realized they were doing cultural appropriation and changed up, you know, they learned and started doing things differently. And I gotta say, I, I like K-pop now. I mean, you know, I teach how Pilates and my wife, uh, my wife and I have these yoga studios. I teach how Pilates, sometimes I'll put in a K-pop song, you know, and I've seen some of the activists on some of them. Now I'm gonna, uh, you know, I did have tickets to one of the K-pop concerts for my kids because they were doing so well in school got canceled, you know, because of COVID. So I got that money back, and I, which I appreciated getting that money back. It would have been tough to sit through a concert. But, you know, I like you said, with the, with the classical, I have a real appreciation for, for, for K-pop now. And I hated it going in, but I never fully listened to it, just like the Willem Dafoe example. Once you get in it, you might be surprised. Yeah. And then if you still don't like it, at least you have something to, at least you have, at least you've explored it. Because at the end of the day, you're right on the Congo. There's, there's a certain number of people that are gonna not like something, whatever that something is. There's people mm -hmm. that won't eat vegetables, none. Like I have friends that won't eat any vegetables, none, zero. Like what, <laughs> none? Uh, my but, friend only likes lettuce on his Big Mac. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if you explored, if you explored really good cooks who could cook vegetables in different ways, then I think if you come out of it and you said, no, no, I still hate vegetables. They were cooked really great. I had them grilled. I had them, you know, boiled. I had them broiled. I had them baked. I had them all kinds of ways and I don't like them. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. You don't like vegetables. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. On that note, I got to tell you this. I hate. They tell you, you should never use the word hate. Yeah. I hate. I heavily dislike. <laughs> okra. Oh. And okra. <laughs> I, I, it, it, it's just the slimiest, most disgusting thing. And I used to tell all people this, including my students one year. And this one girl in class said, Mr. Williams, that's because you never had my mother's okra. <laughs> and I was like, I don't care who makes the okra. I don't like it. Yep. That was my ignorance talk. She's right? like, challenge accepted. <laughs> right? And that's it. That's it. So she did, ah, oh, in front of the whole class, she said, Mr. Williams, if I bring in my mother's, if my grandmother's okra, will you at least try it? So now, how am I going to, in front of all of these students, mm -hmm. say, no, I hate it, I won't try it? Yeah. Of course, I'm thinking, eh, she'll forget. Yeah, yeah. She didn't forget. <laughs> she brought it into class. She didn't bring it to my office. She brought it to class <laughs> in the Tupperware bowl, nice and warm. Yes. And I'm like, yes. all right, let me peel it off. Give me the fork. And I took a bite <laughs> and I was like, wow, this, this is good. Mm. Listen, it turned out her grandmother just, she she prepared it. I, I, I don't remember if she fried it, roasted it. I don't remember what it was, but it wasn't slimy and it was good. Yeah. And I was no longer speaking 
from my one experience yes. with Oprah, yes. right? right? I diversified and multiplied my experience and my exposure, and I, I still won't eat slimy okra, but mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My, yeah. my hatred for okra is no longer the same because I educated my ignorance. That's powerful, man. I mean, how and how does that translate into people? People, yeah, when I grew up, there was this one black guy in my community and he would just always do this. You know, one person in the surveys that I'm doing for the for, for the for the lies about black people book, you know, the guy, you know, my dad just said black people that my job, they smell differently, you know, and they take that one experience and what they do is they maximize the minimum and they minimize the maximum, right? You know, so they take that one experience and maximize it to everybody everybody and then when somebody does something great who doesn't go for the stereotype they minimize it and undermine their accomplishments so that over example that you gave is, is very powerful when you transfer it over to, to human people that one white person i met she was just so racist and i just it just made me think that all white people are racist i just didn't want to mess around with them and you know that goes to my thing about you know white girls that i started with with the stereotype i had growing up that exposure is the key I mean, we wouldn't even need so much of this DEI work that we do in this world if people could just commit to being exposed and then studying what they see. You know, one of the things the great late author Bell Hooks talked about, you know, with desegregation and school busing, is she talked about there was so much energy and effort spent on sending Black kids to the white schools, but they should have also been sending white kids to the black schools, you know, just so, so people can see the differences and not to say these schools are inferior based on race, but they're inferior based on policies that were put in place to keep them undermined. when you see that you want to fight, you know, some people, you know, saw like a Peace Corps commercial and wanted to go and help and do different things because and wanted to work to change the system. But we're all in our silos now, you know, where we don't go on TV or into our social media spaces looking for information. We go looking for affirmation. You know, we just go looking for people who think like us and there's, there's no learning there. We can't learn. We can't grow. Oh, wow. You know, my, my mind is blown, Kathy. Uh, with so many different things. And, and, and I know we're starting to draw close to the end of this idea conversation and like, wow. But I, I, I got to throw this one in because I think it's, it, it resonates with me a lot. Kathy, you said at the beginning that you took on Congo's challenge in terms of writing something mm -hmm. for his book. Mm -hmm. And Congo, I wonder how many people might benefit from also that written exercise, mm -hmm. right? Um, because listen, Kathy is my sister. I know mm -hmm. her so well. Her art is so open and so welcoming. Mm -hmm. I okay. even wonder, Kathy, for you, how much just writing it down, how that just opened your mind even further. Mm -hmm. So you imagine somebody who already wants to take on your idea, who already wants to commit to being exposed, mm -hmm. how writing it down after being exposed, again, even if they don't share it with anybody, yeah. how that might resonate. And even those who say they don't want to, or they feel they have no doubt, even if they take the opportunity to commit to being exposed, if they could just take a moment to just 
in private write down what they thought, right? And I only yeah. say commit to being exposed because you said that a few moments ago and the simplicity and, and Kathy and I always talk about this, not the dumbing down and not the watering down, but mm -hmm. the simplicity of commit to being exposed. That's right. That's right. Really ties up a, a, a call to action that I felt that I've heard from you during this conversation. No, it, it's real, man. Not, uh, you know, writing it down is therapeutic and also just speaking it. One day I did these exercises and the woman said her first experience, you know, when race made a difference, she said the first time she saw, she was a kid, she said the first time she saw a black person, she asked her mother, why is that man so dirty? And when she recounting that experience, she just started crying, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we lost Bill Russell, you know, legendary basketball player and activist and humanitarian. And one of his teammates, Bob Cousy, uh, who also, you know, uh, passed, uh, another Celtic great, you know, a white person, uh, in an interview a couple of years ago, you know, before both of them passed, they were talking about like the racism and stuff that was happening. And and Bob Cousy said, you know, and I, I wish I could have done more to intervene back then and then just started crying. Wow. Decades later, decades wow. later, you know, just putting it out there, saying it, that stuff he held in. It's, it can it can be so healing and we need to be in a healing space, not just create safe spaces, but free spaces where we can put it out there, where we can hear, when we can talk about the times we messed up or the time, you know, my shirt here, you know, says upstander, you know, being at the times we weren't upstander, but also the times we were a bystander, also the times we were a perpetrator of whatever happened. We, as Jay-Z says, you know, we can't heal what we don't reveal. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, listen, Kathy, I don't know about you, but my mind's been blown. The mic has been dropped. Um, challenges have been put out there. You called it a game. Omicongo um, challenged us. So I consider that a life-changing game. Yeah. yeah. Omicongo, um, talk to us. Um, when we started this conversation, it was all about how to break down stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And you shared so much with us and we've tried to contribute so much to the conversation. We're just curious, how has your idea evolved or, 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 or transformed or, or, or grown since we started this conversation? Well, it has in, in several ways. And two that I picked up was what you said about the comedians, you know, was 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 a great lesson for me because it has me think you know i talked about how i'm reading people who are in like different quote unquote disability spaces but even in the spaces where i get entertainment you know making sure that i'm looking for those difference of opinions in all spaces and i never thought about it as it relates to, to the comedy right and then you know kathy when you're talking about the book that you just picked up like you just picked that up out of nowhere I am pretty much the type of person that I don't read a book unless it's recommended to me, or of course everybody's talking about it, like in the spaces that I'm in, an email that I get or an NPR story or something. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go get that book. I should check that out. And of course, books that I, I read for research, like for the book and everything like that. But to just walk into a store and, and randomly grab a book that and you know us knowing you kathy you're actually gonna read it not to be like oh i did my diversity work today and then it just sits on the shelf like that's that's deep 
that's that's deep and that's like a real plunge into it and that's action you know that's being an upstander that's like really just getting out there and doing that and i'm like how how much more spontaneous can i be in the work that i'm doing which i think even in doing that will bring more authenticity to what i'm doing so those are just two of the things that i that i picked up today wow thank you thank you for sharing that and and tell us at this point then um and by the way, everybody knows I'm going to the kitchen table and asking about seven things. And then I'm going to actually take it to work and ask about the seven things. This idea is getting spread for anybody who wants to upstand with you, who wants to commit to being exposed just like you. How do they learn more about Dr. Amakongo? How do they get the book? How do they join this idea? Uh, absolutely. And hopefully if we get a chance, I'd also like to end with a short poem, uh, if, if possible. Just let me know. But they can go to upstanderinternational.com. Again, upstanderinternational.com, which will forward to omekongo.com. In the social media spaces, you can just go to at omekongo, O-M-E-K-O-N-G-O, as you see in the description as well down there. Um, and, and you can catch me in those social media spaces as well. And I'm here for the conversation. I want to be engaged with you. I want to learn with you. I want to be on this journey together with you. And if you're interested in having me come out to your organizations, your schools, your companies, whatever it is, your churches, mosques, synagogues, uh, I would just love to come out and meet and work with you and work on building these common ground in these uncommon times. And when the book comes out, Lies About Black People, we'll get, uh, if you're interested in the survey, you can contact me. I'd love to get your thoughts into it for survey answers that don't make the book. We're going to build out a web page so people can see what everybody's saying. And it'll be an ongoing thing. And that's also going to help us. And so that'll be out in the spring. It's through Prometheus Books, uh, formerly a division of Random House. So I've written in books before in the past. This is my first one dealing with a publisher. Uh, of this level. So I'm very excited about that. And we are excited for you. We are mostly definitely excited for you. And Kathy, are you ready before we tell everybody that if you've got an idea, if you know someone who's got an idea and you want to join Kathy and I in this idea conversation so that you can reach more people as you grow and uh, grow the influence of your idea, Check us out at it's about to go down.com at our website. Get in touch with us. We'd love to have a conversation with you and all other great idea creators out there. So, Kathy, we rang it in with some lyrical genius. Yeah, we did. <laughs> Are we ready to ring it out with some lyrical genius? Let's go. All right. The floor awesome. is yours, my friend. The floor is yours. Thank you. So this is, I'd like to end on a positive note. This is a motivational poem I wrote called Grow Towards Your Greatness. They say that greatness is a choice, but what have you chosen? You've been frozen in time and broken in mind. For too long, the same song playing in your head, living in breath, but better off dead. But who said that you didn't have the power? Who said this is not your hour? You've been showered with a steady stream of words that kill your dreams. But since you're still breathing, then someone has lied to you, tried to deny you of your own potential inside you. If you just decide to, let no one deride you. Don't even let them get beside you as you unearth the new you. Stop listening to naysayers and decide to do you. 
No more pity parties, sob stories, and boo-hoos. If no one told you that you're great, then let me be the first to. If you develop the thirst to drink from face fountain, you'll develop the might to move mountains. You see, we remove tons of dirt to find one ounce of gold. So I ask you to remove tons of hurt and just uncover one ounce of your soul. You'll set yourself on a true path of excellence, getting out of your passenger seat and driving your own car. Reaching for the moon, but maybe only landing among the stars. You see, you have greatness inside you, but you must choose to be great. Blaze a path of excellence, leaving fear in your wake. All you need is already inside you. You just must believe in yourself. Grow towards your greatness and discover your true wealth. Thank you. And on that note, it just got dropped on another episode of It's About to Go down. <laughs>